Uh, well, g'day everyone, and it's great to be with you during our annual Global Gospel Focus as we look at the life and legacy of Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, we've had an evening like this as part of our Missions Week for the past few years now, looking at the life of someone who God has used in powerful ways. But the purpose of these evenings is not ultimately focus on them, uh, but to thoughtfully and carefully consider how they might help us to follow Jesus. That's our goal this evening. Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. This verse is urging us not only to remember the lives of those who have gone before us, but but to carefully consider, doesn't it, their way of life and its, and its outcome and where appropriate to follow their example as they follow the example of Christ. That's our goal tonight as we think about Elizabeth Elliot, uh, to allow her to inspire us, to encourage us and to challenge us generally, but also especially as we think about our role for each one of us, our role in the cause of global missions. So let's jump right in. Long before she became Mrs. Elliot, Elizabeth Howard was born in 1926 in Belgium to missionary parents who were there serving with the Belgian Gospel Mission. When she was just five months old, her parents had to return to the US, so she grew up in Pennsylvania along with her four brothers and one sister. Although her parents were no longer missionaries on the field themselves, the Howard home became quite a hub for visiting missionaries and Christian speakers, which meant that from a young age, Elizabeth was exposed to the idea of cross-cultural missions. The visiting missionaries at the dinner table would often regale Elizabeth and her siblings with their stories. She reflects on the time that Russell Abel, a missionary in the South Pacific, thrilled them with stories of having to flee from cannibals. It's a wonderful children, uh, story for young children. Uh, L.L. Lectors told them about coming into contact with remote Indian tribes in Mexico that no one from the outside world had even known existed. A single woman, Helen Yost, a missionary to the American Indians, opened Elizabeth's eyes to the importance of Bible translation work. But it wasn't just thrilling stories of adventure that she heard. One of the missionaries that Elizabeth met at her home one day was Betty Stam, a missionary to China, along with her husband, John. Elizabeth loved reading letters from the mission field about Betty, much like we get email updates from our missionaries today. She loved hearing about what they were doing and what was going on in China, but one day she received some shocking news when she was still young. Betty and John had been captured by communist forces, marched through the streets and beheaded. Their three-month-old daughter only survived because Betty had hidden her right before they were captured and was found two days later by Chinese Christians in a pile of rubble. If you receive updates from mission partners in the field today, try to imagine what it would be like if you got an update like that. So from early on, she was, had a keen awareness of both the highs and lows, if you like, of being a missionary. Both the great need for the people to take the gospel to those who hadn't heard it, but also the very real cost that faced many for doing so. A few years later, uh, a biography of Betty Stam was published and it had a strong impact on young Elizabeth when she read it. 
she came across a passage where Betty had written out a prayer. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept your will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to you, to be yours forever. Fill me and seal me with your Holy Spirit. Use me as you will. Work out your whole will in my life at any cost, now and forever. God had answered that prayer for Betty Stam, and it did come at great cost. Elizabeth copied that prayer in, in the front of her Bible and read it often, committing herself to God in the same way. It's quite a powerful prayer, isn't it? Simple, but asking God to use me however he will, using my whole life for his purposes, whatever the cost. I mean, it takes some boldness to actually ask that of God, doesn't it? And I wonder, for you and me, if we had the boldness to pray that way to God, I wonder how he might answer. He certainly answered that prayer for young Elizabeth and would use her powerfully throughout her life, also at great cost. After she finished high school, Elizabeth went to Wheaton College where she enrolled in a pre-medical degree, thinking that medicine would be useful on the mission field. But as time went on, she felt a study pulled towards translation work and uh, wanting to help put the Bible in more languages. And so she switched her major from medicine to Greek. And it was here at Wheaton that Elizabeth first yet a young man named Jim Elliott. Jim was a fellow student and head of the Foreign Missions Fellowship, a group of students who were seriously thinking about cross-cultural ministry. And in her final year at Wheaton, uh, the two of them had almost identical class schedules, which was quite rare in a university of that size. They were both, they had, they had four classes together in one semester, Ancient Greek, Thucydides, Herodotus, and the Septuagint. Quite difficult um, classes as well. It was quite a full-on semester, and soon they were studying Greek together every night. It actually reminds me a bit of how Alex and I got to know each other in Bible college. Um, but Jim and Elizabeth got along well and discovered they shared a lot in common, not just Greek, but why were they studying Greek? Well, they shared a passion to see the Bible translated and made accessible to more people. They both had a passion for the spread of the gospel in cross-cultural mission work. Uh, but this isn't your typical romance story, because another thing they both had in common is that they were both intending to go to the mission field single. They both come to this conviction independently. Elizabeth, uh, you can find this in her journal, she shares that she got to this conviction based on 1 Corinthians 7, which says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. This passage showed her that every Christian was free to marry. The Bible doesn't restrict us in that regard. But that choosing to remain single would allow her to focus her undivided attention on serving the Lord on the mission field. 
Jim had come to the exact same conviction independently. And for him, Matthew 19 was a key verse. In Matthew 19, Jesus is teaching on marriage and he mentions those who have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. After attending a missions conference in 1949, he wrote to Elizabeth, they were just friends at the time, tribal work in, South, in the South American jungle is the general direction of my missionary purpose, he had figured out at this missions conference. Also, I'm confident that God wants me to begin jungle work single. My decision was based on seeing a man from central Brazil, uh, Brazilian jungles who has done a work comparable to the sort I feel exercised for. He told of the impossibility of marriage in his particular context. I'm not saying God is leading me to a life of celibacy. I only know that I need I only know what I need to know for now, and that is that the Lord does not want me seeking a wife. And so shortly before Elizabeth graduated from Wheaton, they decided that although they shared much in common and even had strong feelings for each other, that they would not pursue a relationship. It's quite a difficult decision for them both. Elizabeth wrote in her journal, It's strange that two should have their whole patterns of thinking so intermingled. She said, she's saying our whole outlook on life was so similar. Has God allowed this as a test of our stand with him for a single life? And with that, uh, they went their separate ways. She went off for further studies in Oklahoma and Canada for the mission field, and he stayed on at Wheaton. They did decide to keep up regular correspondence by letter, though, uh, to encourage each other because they had such a like-mindedness as they both headed on their separate paths towards the mission field. Uh, And for the next three years, it was a time of preparation for Elizabeth. After Wheaton, she did postgraduate studies at Prairie Bible Institute, as well as doing intensive linguistics training with Wycliffe, learning how to meet a tribe who only spoke an oral language, they didn't have anything written down, uh, learning how to reduce what they said to a phonetic alphabet to turn it into a script that could be written so that the Bible could then be translated into that language so that the people could then be taught to read so that they could have access to the gospel. So she started to learn those skills. Uh, but even after all that, she didn't, didn't go straight out to the mission field. Instead, even after she'd graduated, she wanted to stay in North America and do two things. Firstly, she wanted to discern where God might want her. There were opportunities and certainly great need to go as a missionary to Africa, to the South Pacific, South America and other places. And instead of just rushing on a decision, she wanted to discern and think about where best she could be used by God for his purposes. That was the first reason she stayed in North America after graduating. Secondly, she wanted to get experience sharing the gospel at home. This is a really interesting, and I think wise, move on her part. She figured there's not much sense trying to share the gospel with remote jungle tribes in Spanish and difficult tribal languages if she hadn't even learned to share the gospel with people in English. There's probably some wisdom to that. So in the summer of 1950, she served with the Canadian Sunday School Mission, working in rural Alberta among poor, uneducated and unevangelized communities. It was hard and often discouraging, which gave a first-hand experience of just how difficult gospel ministry can be. Great preparation for the mission field. And throughout this time, she began to get a clearer picture of where it is that she would go. 
She began to see, through talking with people from missions agencies and so forth, that there were a comparatively large number of missionaries in Africa at the time, while huge sections of South America were completely unreached. She wrote in her journal, Brazil is the largest unevangelized field in the world. There are Indian tribes far up near the headwaters of the Amazon who have never seen a white face or heard the name of Jesus. How I would love to do some truly pioneer work. In Africa, no mission station is a day's journey from the next. And so she thought about the many tribes who had never heard about Jesus. She started to set her sights on South America. To further prepare herself, she moved to the slums of Brooklyn, New York, where she lived in squalid conditions among Spanish-speaking migrants and began to learn Spanish. At first, she enjoyed the novelty of the experience. As she wrote in her journal on day one, Imagine me living in a tenement in Brooklyn. More fun. But here I am in a bed alone in a little flat in the Spanish section. The Lord is here and I am happy. It wasn't long, though, before she began to struggle. The very next day, her journal entry reads, Lonely. What do missionaries do who go to a foreign field alone? Here I have friends nearby but feel so very much alone. I've been cold ever since I got here. There was no heating or hot water. And the place is so filthy too. She wrote a letter to Jim. I do not deny that I am sometimes lonely here, surrounded entirely by foreigners, with not even a tree to relieve the oppression of filthy walls. All around are typical east side tenements with their rusted fire escapes, broken stone steps, bedding drooling from the window sills, etc. This building's no exception. The smell of boiled cabbage, rusted steam pipes, and crumbling plaster greets me every time I labour up the five flights of dank stairway, utterly removed from anything I've ever known. It was difficult for her, but she saw it as part of her preparation for the mission field, because she wasn't naive about the fact that being a missionary is hard. And the reason she was doing this preparation now is that she knew she wouldn't magically become a cross-cultural expert and hardcore disciple-maker overnight. You don't become a missionary simply by hopping on a plane. Or to put it another way, there's no such thing as transformation by aviation. She wrote, I think we often we prospective missionaries get a false idea that somehow everything is going to be different on the, on the field, including ourselves. Not so. Granted, there will be much that is different in our environment and many adjustments necessary. Let us not minimise these. But on the other hand, as old Pike used to say, uh, he was a, a, a teacher of theirs at Wheaton, you're stuck with yourself. It's the same sad, sweet, stinking self that we shall have to deal with on the mission field. And the more trying the circumstances, the sadder, the sweeter, the more stinking that self. Oh, Jim, what a tremendously serious thing, this missionary business. Now, she's on something really important here. For those who are planning on going into missions or, or any kind of ministry in the future, often this can be an idea, usually subconsciously, we don't even realise that we're thinking it, but that we'll be different on the mission field. Well, yeah, I'm struggling with these sins now. And sure, I'm not growing in godliness the way I want to be now. Look, I might not actually be active in sharing the gospel or helping anyone to know Jesus better now, but, but when I'm on the mission field, things will be different. But Elizabeth reminds us that we won't be a different person on the mission field. 
We're stuck with ourselves with all our weaknesses, our sins, our character flaws. And in fact, the more trying the circumstances, being away from the comforts of home, dealing with culture shock, the more those weaknesses are going to be exposed and even magnified. And so this is a great reminder for any among us, and I hope that there are some, who are thinking about possibly being cross-cultural missionaries one day. We don't magically become holy by moving to another country. We don't magically become disciple-makers by getting on a plane. Because there's no transformation by aviation, that means that if we're thinking about missions or really any kind of ministry down the line, start now. Start devoting yourself to growing in holiness now. Start getting experience sharing the gospel wherever you can and, and making disciples now. About 10 years ago, my great uncle gave me an extremely important piece of advice. He was a former missionary to the Congo, and he'd just found out that I'd enrolled to go to Bible college, but I had six months before the academic year would start. And he said to me, Ben, it's great that you're doing this, but, but be really clear about this, Ben. He said, going to Bible college will not make you a godly man. It will not instill life-giving habits of growing in godliness and love. It will not magically make you grow closer with Jesus. It will not give you a heart for the lost and a passion to share the gospel. If you want to grow in those things, you need to commit to do that yourself and start now. And you know what? I didn't quite realize it at the time, but he was dead right. Uh, So, uh, for those among us who might be considering that in the future, let me just encourage you to start building that character and those habits now. Even once Elizabeth had graduated and had years of Bible college under her belt, she sought out opportunities to prepare herself for the mission field at home. And hers is a great example for us to follow. Now, during her time in Brooklyn, uh, she met someone named Doreen Clifford, Doreen was a British missionary who was on furlough and who was about to return to the jungles of Ecuador in South America. They had an eye-opening conversation, and this is what Elizabeth wrote about it afterwards in her journal. It was very profitable to talk with her and get some idea of conditions there. She gave me much practical advice on what to expect and necessary equipment, but more than that, she told me of the burden she has for the yet-untouched Alka tribe. Humanly, it would be impossible for women to do such work. Men have tried and been killed. But she believes the Lord has given her this concern for some purpose, if only to pray. Or perhaps she might be a stepping stone for someone else to go in. She said she felt she should work with someone else if God leads her into the field to go back and ask me to pray about whether he might want me to go with her. And sure enough, go with her, she would. At the time, even as she wrote this journal entry, she couldn't have known just how intertwined her own life would become with that feared Alka tribe that she had only just heard of. But just a few months after that initial conversation, on April 5th, 1953, Elizabeth set sail from New York for Ecuador, the small South American country that just so happened to be the same place that Jim Elliott was heading to as a missionary as well. They arrived there about two months apart, and initially they were both based 
in Quito, the capital, where they stayed for about six months of intensive Spanish and preparation for jungle work. But it wasn't long before Jim headed out east into the Amazon to work among the Quechuas, and she headed in the opposite direction to work among the Colorado Indians doing, in Western Ecuador doing Bible translation work. Now, it's helpful to keep in mind that at this stage, they were both intending to do missionary work single, at least until they got a sense of whether or not marriage would be a hindrance in a jungle context. But they still kept up frequent correspondence by letter. And after a few months, in their letters to each other, even though they couldn't see each other, they started talking more and more seriously about the possibility of getting married some point in the future. In August of 1953, however, disaster struck the missionary, station, uh, the missionary base called Shandia, where Jim Elliott and his colleagues were stationed. After heavy rains, the river flooded and destroyed all their buildings. The kind of cliff started to cave away metre by metre until the buildings were sucked into the river. Months of hard work was destroyed, and with their base no longer existing, Jim and a few of his missionary colleagues set off on a three-work scouting expedition on canoes down the rivers, looking for new opportunities for outreach among the Quechua Indians. And during this trip, they met a native man named Adonazio. Adonazio lived in a small clearing called Puyupungu, pretty cool name, with his two wives and 15 children. And he asked the men to come live among them and, and establish a school to teach his children and some of the surrounding children. Now, they'd been on the mission field for a few years now, but this was the first time that they'd received an invitation like this. Normally, you had to work for years to gain the trust and friendship of the locals. But here, right off the bat, was an open invitation. It seemed like too good an invitation to refuse. But there was a problem. Who would go? They needed two missionaries to go and establish the school. And Jim was keen, but there was no one to go with him. The other missionaries he was with were needed at the other stations. And he certainly couldn't take Elizabeth with him since they weren't married. So it seemed they were at an impasse. But what were they going to do about this great gospel opportunity? Well, Jim thought about it and he came up with a solution. So, he said to Elizabeth, how soon will you marry me? And less than three weeks later, on October 8th, 1953, they were married. Here's Elizabeth's description of their wedding. We were married without a fuss at the Registro Civil, that's a civil registrar, um, in Quito. It was a delightfully simple 10 minutes. A dingy, high-ceilinged room in an antique colonial building, a suitably solemn official who read, in rapid monotone, several pages of Spanish, punctuated here and there by our C. Dr. and Mrs. Tidmarsh, uh, missionary friends, our official witnesses, were the only ones present beside the McCulley's, also their missionary colleagues. We signed our name in an immense ledger, and we were man and wife. No fancy wedding, no white dress, no big guest list, but after more than five years of uncertainty about where they stood with each other, and there was a lot of uncertainty, they were together and on the mission field. After a quick South American honeymoon, they began to pack their equipment into steel drums and boxes lined with waterproof paper, loaded them into canoes, and then they were off into the jungle. Puyapungu was a long way from any roads, and the only way 
uh, it was only accessible by canoe, so they loaded up and set off down the river. They eventually arrived at the small thatched house of Adonazio, where he lived with his two wives and 15 children, and proceeded to get things set up. They described how when they first got there, there was this beautiful-looking thatched house that the locals had set up for them that looked so lovely. And so they got ready, uh, lay down to spend the night with 15 uh, pairs of eyes all peering in to the hut to see what the white people were doing. And they went to sleep. Uh, not long afterwards, though, Elizabeth woke up, felt like something was running over her body, and so she asked Jim to turn the light on and very quickly wished that he hadn't. She, there were cockroaches swarming over her whole body. She, there'd been a lot of cockroaches where she previously was in Western Ecuador, but nothing prepared her for this. They were dropping from the ceiling. She pulled the sheet over herself, and they were just running all over her. Uh, so they quickly realised, after a sleepless night, that the thatched house was not going to work. Uh, thankfully, they'd brought a tent with them, so they set that up and spent the next six months, the first six months of their married life, living on a dirt floor tent in the middle of the Amazon jungle. Quite a way to start their life together. After just a few days, um, after setting up a little kitchen shack, um, Jim became quite ill. She gave him anti-malaria medication, because it seemed like that was what was going wrong, but it didn't work, and it got to the point where it seemed like he might die. They were hours and hours and hours away from the nearest doctor, and so, but they'd bought a little radio, a hand-cranked radio. Jim was too sick to crank it, and she couldn't do it herself. You needed two people. But she couldn't convince any of the um, Indian boys to crank it because they didn't understand what was happening. But eventually, she had to, she, one of them did, and she had to call in to one of the nearby missionary doctors to describe his symptoms and cared for him for weeks, for about four weeks, until he recovered. It just gives you a little sense of how difficult and some of the challenges that they faced in these remote, remote places. Eventually, they moved back to the rebuilt mission station at Shandia and would make, they'd cut out an um, airstrip at Puyapungu so they could make regular visits back to teach the children, but they were based at Shandia, where their daughter Valerie was born in February of 1955. Now, it's important to understand, throughout this time, Elizabeth and Jim were living among the Quechua people. The Quechua were a peaceful tribe of Ecuadorian natives who lived in the Amazon jungle. And there were a bunch of different tribal groups. There were the Hivaros, just down to the south, who were somewhat peaceful, but they're the kind of famous head-shrinking guys. Um, The the Quechuas didn't do anything like that. But they had these other neighbours who were known as the Aucas, who they greatly feared. The Alcas were completely shut off from the outside world and were known for regular and deadly spear attacks, not just on white foreigners, who were very rare, but on the peaceful Quechua people as well. Now, the missionary work amongst the Quechuas was, of of course, challenging, but in God's kindness, it was making real progress. There were a solid number of Quechua believers who had accepted the gospel. A number had learned to read and could now access the parts of the Bible that Jim and the others were steadily translating into Quechua. They translated Luke's Gospel and some other parts. And Jim had even trained a number of the Quechuas to preach and teach. And the Quechuas were now taking on more and more ownership for reaching their own people with the Gospel, which is always the goal. It was wonderful to see. So the work among the Quechuas was progressing nicely. But what was constantly on their hearts, on their minds, is that the Alcas still had no access to the gospel. 
and there was no way to reach them. In the middle of 1955, however, a series of events transpired that made contact with the Aukas seem possible. The first obstacle to overcome was simply finding them. People knew which section of the jungle was Alka territory. They knew that if you go past this river, they live somewhere back there. But the Quechua's kept miles away from that. And there was no living person who had ever been to an Alka settlement and survived. So they knew that they were somewhere that way, but no one actually knew how to find them. And if you were found by them, you would be dead. So that was quite a big obstacle. Nate Saint, their friend missionary pilot, who kind of flew around to all the different mission stations doing drop-offs, medicine runs, that kind of thing, he'd been flying over those jungles for years and had never spotted an Alka settlement. But then, in September 1955, in the space of just two weeks, he spotted not one, but two small Alka settlements. So now they at least knew where some of them were. The first obstacle, they had somewhat overcome. They at least knew where they were. But the second obstacle was how to communicate them with them. The Alkas spoke a language that was completely different to the neighbouring Quechua's, and no one outside the Alkas knew how to speak a word of it. But then, around that same time as these villages were discovered, these settlements, right, they're not really villages, they're just isolated houses, but Jim and Elizabeth Elliot got word of an Alka woman who had fled years earlier, but they'd only just heard about it, who had fled from her tribe named Dayuma. Now, Dayuma's father had been speared to death in one of the many tribal feuds, and she knew that she would soon be killed in the cycle of revenge killings that would follow. The Alkas weren't just violent towards outsiders, there were constant infeuds between them. So she fled and had spent the last few years working on a Quechua plantation. So Jim and Elizabeth visited Dayuma and began to learn from her some of the basic phrases that you could, they could use with the Alkas. Biti miti unamupa means, I like you, I want to be your friend. Biti winki punga umpu means, I want to come near you. Umpa Lumpa. No, I made that one up. <laughs> I shouldn't joke about that. <laughs> so they had a few phrases that they could use that if they contacted the Alkas, they could say some things to initiate some kind of friendly contact. But of course, the third obstacle still remained that even if they could find them and even if they could say these phrases, no one had ever survived face to face contact with Alkas. As soon as you get close enough to say biti miti umba pungu or whatever it was, you're dead. So how are they going to get in contact with these people? Well, they started to figure out a plan. Nate Saint, the missionary pilot who we've mentioned, had pioneered a remarkable new technique for doing airdrops from his plane. Instead of just dropping things with parachutes, which people had been doing for a long time, this system, it's some fancy physics, I don't quite understand how it works, but allowed them to gently lower a basket on a really long rope as the, spa- as, as the plane spun around in tight circles above and with the centrifugal or centripetal forces or something, basically it gets to the point where the bucket would hover and they could slowly bring it down to the ground someone could grab it, take things out of it while the plane keeps spinning up ahead, 
put something back in if they like and then send it off. They'd often use this for places to contact missionaries where there was no airstrip cut yet. They even figured out a way to get a really long telephone line and put a telephone receiver in the bucket so that they could have a conversation with the missionary on the ground while they, and then reel the bucket back off. And so they realized that they could use this system. This literally was pioneered by Nate, Nate Saint, who used to be uh, an Air Force pilot, but then became a missionary pilot. He figured this system out somehow. So using this method, they started flying over the Alka settlements, giving them gifts, while shouting through a loudspeaker some of the phrases they had learned. We're your friends. We like you. The Alkas were afraid at first. What's this giant, kind of really loud would-be, they called it, that was kind of flying around. But then they soon began to react positively, running out whenever they heard the plane coming and waving and smiling and taking the gifts with delight. The missionaries sent them food, useful things like pots and machetes, which the Alkas loved, even little pictures of themselves so that the Alkas would recognize them when they eventually made face-to-face contact so that they would associate these missionaries on the ground with those nice people giving us free stuff. On a few trips, the Alkas even began to send gifts back, tying on a basket for missionaries to reel in on the flight home. They were given bright, colourful headdresses. Um, Once when they got back and opened the basket, they found a live parrot, (laughs) which the Alkas kept as pets. And so what this told them, that it's one thing to drop gifts But the Alkas were actually not only smiling and waving, but starting to give them gifts back. This was positive, friendly, two-way communication starting to happen. It was remarkable. Operation Alka, as it was called, was well underway, and they were slowly building friendly contact with the Alkas. And after a few months, after much thought, planning, and prayer, they decided it was time to meet the Alkas face to face. But before we look at that, we're going to have a short break. Everyone loves a cliffhanger. Uh, Quickly, uh, feel free to please quickly grab some supper. There's some food out there in the hall. And um, have a chat with someone about something that you've been struck by so far. Ask them, is there something that stood out to you? And we'll resume in 10 minutes. So please do try to be prompt on supper. All right, we're about to get started. There's a few stragglers join us. All right, we're about to kick things off again. So I invite you to take a seat. Just a reminder that if you've got any questions, you can text them to that number. I'm not sure how many we'll get to, but I'll try to at least get to a few. So if you do have a question, feel free to text it through and I'll do the best I can. Okay, so we've so far seen something of Elizabeth L. Elliot's early years, her preparation for the mission field, and her first years in Ecuador with Jim among the Quechua Indians. Uh, we then saw the commencement of Operation Alka, which involved months of flyovers in Alka territory, exchanging of gifts and friendly interaction. And with all things going well, it got to the point where the five missionaries began to plan for their first face-to-face contact with the Alkas. So the next question was how to do it. 
during their flyovers, Nate Saint had spotted a strip of land, a strip of sand rather, along the Kurarai River in Alka territory that was just a few hours' walk from one of their settlements, which is close. Um, after a few weeks of planning, they had a lot of elaborate systems set up to be really careful about how they did this the best way possible. Um, after lots of planning, they flew in. Um, there's a, a still that you can find video footage of them flying in the plane, doing a big S-bend and then landing on the um, sandbank. It's pretty impressive. And they set up camp and then they waited. They figured it would be too dangerous to go into the Alka camps themselves, especially being five men, as they were, as it could be interpreted as aggressive. So instead, they set up camp a few hours' walk away, they continued the flyovers with gifts, and over the loudspeaker, they invited them to come and to come visit. And sure enough, after a few days of waiting, three Alkas appeared at their camp. They couldn't understand each other. They couldn't speak a word of each other's language. But they spent hours together. Uh, there were three. There was one man, this guy, who they called George, um, although <laughs> they later discovered his name was Nankiwi. Um, and there were two women, one younger woman and one older woman. They shared food. Uh, there's George, or Nankiwi, eating a hamburger, um, which he quite enjoyed. And then you can see the plane in the background, in the foreground, a little model plane that they had made. Quite similar, they painted it the same colour to help kind of demonstrate. And so they would do things like, um, there's them doing a demonstration for George, and they've got some kind of sticks set up, which represent um, trees, and they fly the plane around and then swoop it in, and then it crashes, and they go, oh no! And then they take the plane away again and they pretend to cut down the trees with the machetes. And then the plane comes in again and it lands and they go, yay! And so they're, they're trying to teach George about building an airstrip. Because, of course, once they could get the Alcas to do that, and that's what they did in all the settlements they went, and they, instead of having to trek in for hours, they could fly in. So they started to have these one-foot interactions that lasted all day. Then finally, as the day drew to a close, uh, the Alcas left. They walked off and headed for home. Uh, the five missionaries couldn't believe it. This was the first friendly contact with the Alcas in recorded history. Uh, ever since the time of the conquistadors, centuries earlier, there had been many documented encounters with the Alcas, and all of them had ended with blood. And here was friendly contact with three Alcas. It's remarkable. They'd taken pictures and even video during the day, which you're, you've been seeing stills from. And they even wrote about their encounter in their journals. Um, this is what they'd been planning for and, and praying towards for months. They used the plane's radio to report back home, and indeed Nate Saint and one of the other missionaries would fly back home uh, because they had a little uh, treehouse set up to keep them safe from pumas and that kind of thing, um, and only three people could fit in it. So they would fly back each time, and so they'd report to the five wives how things were going. So things were going well, but it was still a tense time, and Elizabeth, back at Shandia, looked forward to the daily radio updates that filled them in. Uh, this was on January 6th. Then the following day, January 7th, they kept waiting, but there was no Alka visit. But the following day, while Nate Saint was on a scouting uh, trip, he spotted a bunch of Alkas who were walking towards the camp awesome, they were going to have their second visit. 
He excitedly flew back, let the guys know, and also radioed it in back to home base to say, hey, we've got some more coming. They're going to visit us soon. Um, I'll radio back in at 4.30 p.m. and let you know how it went. Elizabeth, you know, as you can imagine, was anxiously waiting for the radio to come in at the scheduled time, uh, but then nothing came through. The next day, they'd still heard nothing, and so early in the morning, the reserve pilot, Johnny Keenan, flew out to see if he could find out what had happened. He could see from the air, he could see the plane on the beach, but it had been stripped of its fabric skin, and there was no sign of the men. He reported this back to the wives, and they spoke to a fellow missionary pilot who insisted that they contact the United States Air Rescue Service in Panama right away. The missing men made international headlines. I was just talking to someone during the break whose uh, relative actually remembers when this news was made public in Australia. And for over a week, they were waiting, not knowing what had happened, praying. Planes hunt five feared captured by savages and other headlines like that. As the international headlines went out, the people poured in. Military personnel, journalists and other missionaries poured into Ecuador to see what they could do to help find these men to figure out what had happened. Search parties were formed, both by Ecuadorian soldiers and others, and also by groups of local Quechua Indians who heard that that their beloved missionary was missing. And so they trundled off into the jungle to see if they could find them. When the search parties reached the strip of sand, they found the empty plane, and over the next few days, they found the bodies of the five young missionaries, which had been thrown into the river. Some of the bodies still had spears through them, so there was no doubt about how they died. They'd met their end in an ambush at the hand of the Alcas who visited their camp on January 8th, 1956. Elizabeth Elizabeth and the other wives were already fearing the worst at this point, but a military officer gathered them together to share all the information they had from the trip and about finding the bodies. Their deaths were a great tragedy. The five young men were aged between 27 and 32. They left behind five wives and nine children, one of whom was born a few weeks after their deaths. Elizabeth had one daughter, 10-month-old Valerie. As news broke, there were people who questioned whether the men had been irresponsible by taking such risks, while they had young families to care for. But the wives knew the risks as well as their husbands. They were not passive parties in this operation. And in fact, uh, Elizabeth shares later about how in, so the men were killed in January. Elizabeth later shares about how they'd all five of them gathered together in December one night, a few weeks before the first Alka encounter, to discuss the possibility that their husbands might die trying to reach the Alkas. Elizabeth writes, The other wives and I talked together one night about the possibility of becoming widows. What would we do? 
God gave us peace of heart and confidence that whatever might happen, his word would hold. Each of us knew when we married our husbands that there would be, that would, there would be never any question about who came first. God and his work held first place in each life. It was the condition of true discipleship. It became devastating, meaning, devastatingly meaningful now. It was a time for soul-searching, a time for counting the possible cost. Was it the thrill of adventure that drew our husbands on? No. Their letters and journals make abundantly clear that these men did not go out as some men go out to shoot a lion or climb a mountain. Their compulsion was from a different source. Each had made a personal transaction with God, recognising that he belonged to God, first of all by creation, and secondly through redemption by the death of his son Jesus Christ. This double claim on his life settled once and for all the question of allegiance. To these men, Jesus Christ was God and had taken upon himself human form in order that he might die and by his death provide not only escape from the punishment which their sin merited, but also a new kind of life, eternal, both in length and in quality. This meant simply that Christ was to be obeyed. And more than that, that he would provide the power to obey. The point of decision had been reached. God's command, go and preach the gospel to every creature, was the categorical imperative. The question of personal safety was wholly irrelevant. These five missionary women, just like their husbands, were committed to taking the gospel to those who didn't know it, even in the face of the very real risks. Not out of a sense of adventure, but because they knew that eternity was at stake. Every Alka who died without a chance to hear the gospel would slip away into eternity and justly receive punishment for the way they had lived. The Bible is clear that in such circumstances, all are without excuse before God and must face his eternal judgment for their sin and rebellion. But every, that, that was the case for every Alka who died if they weren't reached with the gospel. But every missionary who died trying to reach them had this security. Not even death could snatch them away from the Heavenly Father's loving arms. When they travelled to that strip of sand to set up camp and wait for the Alkas, The five missionaries had brought guns along with them for protection against the predators and dangers of the jungle. So they were armed when they were attacked by men with wooden spears. They had guns. But they had decided beforehand that no matter what, even if they were attacked by the Alkas, they would not use the guns to fight back or defend themselves. Because if it came down to a question of kill or be killed, The decision was clear, as they put it. We're ready for heaven. The Alcas are not. The deaths of these young men seemed all the more tragic because it seemed to come out of nowhere. I mean, why, after that initial friendly contact, did the Alcas suddenly attack and kill them? For a long time after their deaths, that question remained a mystery. and There was simply no way of knowing. Who could possibly know what the Alcas were thinking, their motivation? 
but years later, in conversations with the Arcus who killed them, it was discovered that one of the men from the initial visit got into an unrelated dispute the day afterwards, that day when no Arcus visited. He got into an unrelated dispute with other members of the tribe and they wanted to kill him because of it, as they often did. But to deflect blame away from himself, he lied to his tribe and told them that the white men were plotting to harm them. Based on this lie, and out of a genuine fear that the missionaries intended them harm, and they had good reason, every white man they'd ever encountered before from the conquistadors onwards had meant them harm. Out of a genuine fear, and to be fair, out of they already lived in a cultural situation where they would kill people for very little. So it didn't take a lot of reason to think, because there isn't a chance that these guys are going to harm us, we should kill them first. It was based on that that they decided to go kill the five men. Years later, Elizabeth wrote when she realised this, basically it was fear that led them, the Alkas, to do what they now regard as a mistake. But we know that it was no accident. God performs all things according to the counsel of his own will. The real issues at stake on January 8th, 1956 were very far greater than those which immediately involved five young men and their families or this small tribe of naked savages. Letters from many countries have told of God's dealing with hundreds of men and women through the example of five who believed literally that the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. The five believed that this world is temporary. They believed that heaven and hell are real, that eternity is a long time. They took Jesus at his word when he promised that whoever believes in him will live forever and whoever doesn't will perish. They took Jesus at his word and they chose to shape their lives around those eternal realities. And as Elizabeth shares, hundreds, if not thousands, have been encouraged and inspired to do the same in their own context because of the example of these five men. At the time, the news of their deaths made international headlines and there were many who saw it as a senseless waste of life. Five brilliant young men with promising futures, and they did all have very promising futures before they left for the jungle. Five men with young families who threw it all away for nothing. And you know what? If this world is all there is, then those people are right. It was a senseless waste of life. But if this world is not all there is, if Jesus is right, and this world and its desires pass away, but those who do the will of God live forever, their deaths were not a waste. In 1949, seven years before the attack, while Jim Elliot was still in college, he wrote the following line in his journal. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, we cannot keep the things of this fading world or take them with us into eternity, can we? Our possessions, our very life on this earth, we can't keep it. 
Your life will be taken away from you one day, whether it's 50 years from now or tomorrow. So why not be willing to give these things up? Our possessions, our money, our time, yes, even our life, to gain things that can never be taken away from us. Eternal treasure, souls won for Jesus. An inheritance and a reward that, will, can, that we cannot lose for all eternity. These five men knew what they were doing. They knew what the risks were. They knew what was at stake. And they were no fools. And so I wonder, what might it look like for you and me to follow the example, their example, and to live in light of these truths, these eternal realities? I mean, if you're anything like me, none of this is new information. I know this stuff. Heaven, hell, eternity, the shortness of this life. It's not new information. But so often it fails to shape my priorities. So often we end up spending our lives for the things of this world. Spending our money to make this short life a little more comfortable. Working for what we cannot keep. Looking to what will not last. And all the while, thousands who perish. Hebrews 13.7 tells us to remember those who have gone before us and to consider the outcome of their way of life and where appropriate to follow their example as they followed the example of Christ. So I wonder what might it look like for you and for me in our Australian context to set our priorities in light of eternity. The way we spend our money, the way we spend our time, the way we think about our career, our house, where we live, what we teach our children, what we model to them as important. What would it look like for the death and resurrection of Jesus and the eternal realities that flow from it to set the agenda for every part of our lives? You know, part of our goal in hosting these evenings each year is that God would place in some of us a desire and a willingness to offer ourselves up for missionary service. It won't be all of us, it can't be, but it can be some of us. Could it be you? Are you one of the people who God might use to go to those in other cultures who don't yet have access to the gospel in the same way that we do here in Australia? If you think that might be you, if that's even on the radar as a possibility for you, we would love it if you would come chat to me or to your congregational pastor. We'd love to hear from you, even just to pray with you and help you explore what that might look like. And for the rest of us, living in light of eternity is not limited to being on the mission field, is it? We can hold the ropes for those who go. We can be active in the spread of the gospel here at home. We can allow Jesus' death and resurrection to be the driving factor behind how we spend our energy, money and time. We can strive for wartime simplicity to maximize our ability to be generous. And we can do it knowing that as we give up things in this life that we cannot keep, we gain 
what we can not lose. As our Lord Jesus promised, whoever who wants to lose his life, as Jesus said rather, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. He means that. Give of thy sons to spread the message glorious. Give of thy wealth to speed them on their way. Pour out thy souls for them in prayer victorious. And all thou spendest, Jesus will repay. The deaths of these five young missionaries was a real tragedy, but in more ways than one, it was not the end of the story. Although Jim was now dead, the five wives lived on. Elizabeth Elliot decided to remain with 10-month-old Valerie at Shandia and continue the work there among the Quechua Indians. The, the last time she saw Jim alive as he walked off to the plane that would carry him to that beach where he died, she had asked him as he walked off, what shall I do if you don't come back? He answered her, teach the believers, darling. Teach the believers. Those were the last words he spoke to her. And that's exactly what she did as she continued the work among the Quechua Indians at Shandia. She wrote about that time, there was much maintenance work to oversee on the station, the clearing of weeds on the airstrip, the planting of pineapples and bananas, the constant work to keep the jungle back from the trails and clearings, the mending of fences and thatched roofs, the finishing of the school building which Jim had started, besides the ordinary work of living without many conveniences. Things like washing your clothes took a very long time in the jungle. I had a baby to care for, medical work to do among the Indians, a girl's school to teach, the translation of the Kichwa scriptures to do, a Bible class in the boys' school to prepare for, and the shepherding of a, young, a group of young Quechua Indians. There was lots to do. And so in circumstances more difficult than we can probably imagine, for the next two years she continued her work amongst the Quechuas. There was a big part of her however, that longed to reach the Alcas with the gospel. They still hadn't heard. And she prayed for them regularly. People often thought she would be angry at the Alcas after what had happened after killing the men who were doing, going so far out of the way for their good. People often thought she would be angry, but the opposite was true. She often found herself explaining, the fact that Jesus Christ died for all makes me interested in the salvation of all. But the fact that Jim loved and died for the Alkas intensifies my love for them. She longed to reach the Alkas with the gospel, but she knew it would take some kind of miracle. And two years went by, and there was no, there was no other opening or opportunity that would, that would seem to indicate there would be some open door for that work to be possible. But then, in November 1957, almost two years after Jim's death, Elizabeth heard news that made her heart jump. Two Alka women had just walked out of the jungle and had come to a Quechua village just a few hours' walk from where she was. 
She packed a few things in her bag and set off immediately on foot. When she arrived, she found the two Alka women who had been dressed by the Quechuas and living and had now been staying among them for a day or so. And she instantly recognised one of them from the photos from, that, from the beach. The film uh, was later recovered. That's how we have access to the, the photos from that first friendly visit. And she recognised that one of the two women was the older woman who had met Jim two years earlier at the beach at that first friendly encounter. Now, due to the language barrier, no one had any idea why the Alka women had come or how long they would stay. And the Quechuas were extremely worried. For generations, they had feared the Alkas. Everyone knew someone who had been killed by them. At one point, the Alka women began to sing. And after the chanting had continued for a while, someone cried out, She's casting a spell! Someone else shouted, they're signalling for the men to ambush us. It was a tense couple of days and the Quechua men slept with their guns by their sides and posted guards throughout the night. But as the days went by, everyone started to calm down a little bit and it seemed like the Aqua women weren't going anywhere. About a week later, Elizabeth and Valerie were bathing in the river with the two Aqua women when they heard a shout from the, across the river, Alcas, they've attacked! The Quechua men ran over with shotguns and found that one of their friends had been ambushed. The Alcas had escaped back into the jungle and his body was riddled with 18 spears. Elizabeth realised that they needed to move back to the relative safety of Shandia, that it wasn't safe to be this close to Alka territory. And the Alka woman seemed happy to come with her. And so over the next 10 months, Elizabeth lived with the two Alka women at Shandia and began to study their language. This is what she was trained to do after all. It was a very difficult language. They've since done linguistical analyses and found that it's, it's, it's got no linguistic connection to any of the languages around them. The Alcas had clearly been distinct and separated for who knows how many hundreds or thousands of years. But she slowly began to understand some basic phrases and to be able to communicate with them and she soon discovered that the two women were aunts of Dayuma. Dayuma was the one Alka girl who had fled many years earlier and who they learned those first early phrases from. And Dayuma had since become a Christian. So they, uh, she brought Dayuma over and they spent a number of months together. And then one day, after about 10 months, the two Alka women said to Elizabeth, it had been just about a year, and they said to her, we promised our family that when that palm fruit fruit is ripe, basically a year from when they left, we would go home and we want you to come with us. Elizabeth was shocked and she asked them, do you think your people will spear me like they speared my husband? The two Aka women laughed and they said, of course not, you're our friend. She was mildly comforted by that but it still seemed extremely risky. She spoke to her friends and family and they discouraged her from going. This wouldn't be the first time that the Alkas appeared friendly, only thing for things to go south quickly. As she travelled to a Quechua village where she met a woman who had been kept captive by the Alkas for a year and then released, which was also a first. This woman, she was a Quechua woman, was the wife 
of the man who had been ambushed a year earlier when these two women first came out of the jungle. They'd killed him and abducted her into the forest. Whenever that happened, you never heard from them again. But uh, Dayuma, or one of, one of the Aquaman had gone back in and basically they'd been willing to release her. And so Elizabeth spoke to her before, as she was weighing up whether or not she should go in. She said, what do you think? And the Quechua woman told her, it won't be long before you are all dead and the vultures will be eating you. She said, did you learn to love the Alcas? The woman said, the women, yes. The men, no. You cannot love them. They are killers. Elizabeth's um, parents and Jim's parents both cautioned her strongly against accepting the invitation of these women to go live with them. But Elizabeth knew that no outsider had ever been invited in by the Alcas before, and this might be the opportunity to bring them the gospel that she'd been waiting for. And so after much prayer and consideration, Elizabeth decided that she would go. She packed up a few belongings, loaded up two-year-old Valerie onto a wooden chair on the back of a Quechua man, and began the three-day hike into Alka territory. It was a tense journey, and the Alka women um, reassured her along the way, but she was still very worried, especially what it would be like meeting these Alka men. But, true to, their, true to their word, they made sure their tribe treated her as a friend. In addition to the two women, the two Alka women, uh, she was also accompanied by Dayuma, the Christian Alka, who had lived outside the tribe for many years, and by Rachel Saint, the sister of the missionary pilot Nate Saint, who had died on the beach with Jim. Rachel had wanted to come as well. Over the next two years, Elizabeth and little Valerie lived with the Alkas, gained their trust and began to learn their language. It was hard, it was difficult. And while Elizabeth was still struggling to put sentences together in the difficult language, which was the fourth language that she learned, so she was no novice at it, uh, while she was still working on basic sentences, Dayuma was busily sharing the gospel with her people week after week. Slowly, some of the Alkas became Christians, including two of the men who had speared the five missionaries a few years earlier. They later become, became elders in the Alka church. But eventually, for a series of reasons, which we don't have time to go into now, Elizabeth decided it was best for her and Valerie to move back to Shandia and continue the work there. And then after another two years, they returned home to the United States in 1963. Now, we don't have time tonight for a full account of Elizabeth's life, but she went on to become a prolific author and speaker, challenging many to give their lives to the mission field and to live more wholeheartedly for Christ, even in their home contexts, to live in light of these eternal realities. She'd already written her first book just six months after Jim's death, called Through Gates of Splendor, detailing the events leading up to the five men being killed. We've got about 10 copies of those books available tonight, and I highly recommend grabbing one. She would go on to write more than 20 other books as well. As she was diagnosed with dementia in 1999 and died in 2015 at the age of 88. 
Elizabeth Elliot led a remarkable life and left a lasting legacy in many different spheres. To take one, the Aukas, now known as the Waranis, which is the name that they call themselves. The Aukas is what the Ketchers called them. The Aukas, now known as the Waranis, were among the many to have been impacted by her life. By 1958, the year that she went to live with them, their population had dwindled down to barely 600 people total due to the constant cycles of revenge killing and they were close to driving themselves to extinction. The women radically outnumbered the men uh, because the men were far more likely to be speared. So they were very close to extinction. Uh, But when Elizabeth went to live among them and Dayuma began to share the gospel with them, the homicide rate dropped by 90% overnight. Now, due to fewer tribal killings and greater access to medicine, their tribe has grown to almost 2,000, and about a third of them are Christians. It's not a kind of, you know, Disney story, and there are always complications when this thing kind of happens. There are issues of dependence. There are issues of clash of cultures and technology. So let's not make the mistake this is all some perfect rosy picture. But by the Alka's by their own reflection, they are extremely thankful for these missionaries who laid down their lives to reach them and for the brave few who followed that up by willing to come live with them and share with them the love of Jesus. Elizabeth was no saint. She would be the first to admit that she was a struggling sinner, just like the rest of us. But our hope tonight is that by remembering her, And considering the outcome of her way of life, we might be encouraged to follow her example and therefore follow Jesus more closely. In January 1951, a year before she left for Ecuador, Elizabeth wrote the following entry in her journal. Since I last wrote, I've read the biography of Francis Ridley Havergal. It did what other Christian biographies have done, deepened my hunger for knowing Christ in his fullness for living wholly unto him who died for us. I am impressed always upon reading of someone who lived a holy life with the reflection, what would be written of me were I to die today? God alone knows how very, very little I know of true holiness, Christ-likeness, and Calvary love. So for Elizabeth herself, biographies of Christians from the past were a great source of encouragement to her. They deepened her hunger for knowing Christ and for living wholly for him who died for us. And so to close tonight, let me commend to you the habit of reading Christian biography. I've given you a fish tonight, but there are many others out there that you can access yourself by digging into this rich resource of Christian biographies. There are so many available, you can even get them on audiobook to listen while you commute or exercise or clean the house. Avail yourself of this rich resource. If you don't know where to start, grab a copy of Through Gates of Splendor or look it up on Amazon or Audible or Christian Audio. And I guarantee that you'll be encouraged and inspired and challenged. They will deepen your hunger for knowing Christ in his fullness. 
and for living wholly for him who died for us. I'm going to open up for questions in a little moment, but first, let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your unwavering goodness to us. Thank you that through Jesus' death and resurrection, we can look forward to eternity with you. Lord, help us not just to anticipate what is to come, but to allow that future reality to shape the way we live now. Keep us from being blinded by the idols of comfort and temporary ease. Enthrall us with your son, Jesus. Open our eyes to his glory and goodness. Open our eyes to the eternal plight of those who don't yet know Jesus. Father, would you use us to bring the gospel to those who haven't heard? Lord, we thank you for the faithful men and women who have gone before us. Imperfect sinners, saved by your grace whose example encourages us to follow Jesus more closely. Lord, would you deepen our hunger for knowing Christ in his fullness and for living wholly for him who died for us. Amen. Well, we've got time for a few questions, I believe. Let's see if I've got any. No questions. Early night. Does anyone have a question that they want to throw open from the floor? The short version of why she left the Alkers was that her and Rachel had some disagreements about the best way to go about missionary work. Um, so that was a bit unfortunate. There was also the case of... Um, Valerie got to the age of, I think, six, and she started to realise that um, for her education and, that, and health and that kind of thing, it, there were, compared to, like, living with the Quechua Indians was, was primitive, living with the Alkas was, was much more difficult. Yeah. Yeah, that's the short version. Mm. Mm. Yes. Yes. Yeah, eight wonderful grandchildren. That's it. Yes. And and um Rachel Saint stayed in with the Alkers until nineteen ninety four when she died of cancer. Um and I highly recommend checking out a documentary called Beyond the Gates of Splendour, which is made by Steve Saint, the son of Nate Saint, and you get um, interviews with all of the wives, and it's, it's really remarkable to see where things went from here. But thank you all for coming, and I hope this has been an encouragement to all of us 
Let's follow Jesus more wholeheartedly and I'll hand over to